BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. So back in the 1950s, when the Republicans started this whole, oh my God, oh my God, we can't have too much national debt and deficit in our election, and they put into law that there was a ceiling to the uh, public debt. This was not something that's like in the Constitution or anything. And then they've used that as a club, basically, to beat up Democrats with over the years, repeatedly. Democrats tend to ignore it. And now they're threatening to do it again, to shut down the government over the debt ceiling. And if they do, it could have some serious consequences. So let's check in with Professor Richard Wolff, the economist and co-founder of Democracy at Work.info, the author of numerous books, his latest, The Sickness Is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, also available now as an e-book, uh, rdwolf.com with two Fs also, and Prof Wolf is his Twitter handle. Professor Wolf, welcome back. So what do we do? Uh, you know, if the, if the what, what actually, what is the, what is the story here? What, you know, the, the debt ceiling, I mean, I, I gave a little bit away in the setup, I suppose, but um, we have this debt ceiling. You, if you could explain that, and then what happens if the Republicans, you know, stay true to this threat that they're making, that, that they're going to refuse to raise the debt ceiling? Well, first of all, the debt. Uh, every year, the government of the United States, like every other government, has to raise money with taxes and spend money for all the things that the government is expected to do. A problem arises if the spending that the government wants to do uh, is larger than the taxes it feels it can reasonably take from its business uh, private businesses and private individuals. When that happens, when the spending is more than the taxes, it's called a deficit. And all that that means is the government has to get the money somewhere else because it hasn't raised the taxes enough to cover the spending. And when it does that, it goes out and borrows money from whoever is willing to lend to the United States government um, and that's simply how the national debt accumulates over time. American governments have been doing that from the beginning throughout our history. Uh, you're absolutely right. Um, in recent decades, the Republicans have found it a convenient story to tell as if it were something new or as if it were something scary, etc., etc. Over the years, as the United States, uh, mainly across the 20th century, became the global uh, powerhouse economy, um, its debt, the debts of the United States government, came to be looked upon around the world as the most secure way to hold wealth. It could not be taken away by your own government if you lived in another country. It wasn't subject to the ups and downs of the economy. It was a kind of debt that Uncle Sam had committed himself uh, to pay you. And what that meant was that anybody who's wealthy enough to worry about it keeps a portion of their company's wealth or their individual wealth or even their country's wealth in the form of debts of the United States government. Now let's fast forward to the present. 
We are currently running deficits larger than any in the peacetime history of the United States. We're currently, as I speak, running a deficit roughly around $3 trillion. In other words, the government is spending money beyond what it raises in taxes to the tune of $3 trillion, which therefore it has to borrow. And now here comes the problem. There's a legal ceiling. Because the Congress did, as you explained, set a limit. You can't borrow more than X trillion dollars uh, as a government. They are now bumping up against the ceiling. And if, in fact, the Republicans carry out their threat uh, this time, mostly these are empty threats, but if they carry it out this time, then suddenly the government cannot borrow anymore because it's reached the ceiling. But if it can't borrow, then it can't spend on all kinds of programs that it needs the money to spend on. And then the government is going to be in a very sticky situation, which is why the Republicans enjoy this, because it will be blamed, they hope, on Mr. Biden and the Democrats as they figure out who's going to not get spent on. Are we going to, for example, uh, stop sending checks to the Social Security people? Are we going to stop funding um, the airports that the government sustains? Are we going to, for example, not pay the interest uh, to, to all the folks who own the American debt and who are therefore entitled to the interest payments? Are we going to tell them you're not going to get your interest payment? If we ever dare do that, then you can bet the next time the government needs to borrow money, people around the world who used to give the government that money uh, won't do it anymore, and that could have terrible consequences. I mean, let me drive the point home. You would have had to raise taxes in America by many, many thousands of dollars on every American for the last 20 years if Americans had paid for the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. The government was able to pay for a large portion of them, not by taxing Americans, but by borrowing the money. But if you do that, then you're going to bump up against the ceiling, all of which the Republicans don't want to tell you. And likewise, they don't want to tell you that the biggest boost to the debts of the United States was the decision under Mr. Trump passed in the Congress in December of 2017 when he gave back the taxes that they had all paid. And so it is really a kind of sleaze to now say, gee, there's a terrible deficit and we have to impose the ceiling when it was the Republicans who bear at least as much responsibility for this deficit and these debts as anybody else. So if... If the Republicans were successful in blocking this, and we've seen this happen before, you know, they, quote, shut down the government. Newt Gingrich started this back in the 90s as a way of beating Bill Clinton over the head. But if they did it long enough, doesn't it have the potential to crash the economy? And might not that be exactly what they want to have happen so that uh, Democrats will be blamed for, you know, the Great Depression of 2021 or whatever? And if so, how would that work? Uh, the crashing of the economy. Well, you know, there it depends on how the Biden government would react. In other words, if they couldn't borrow the amounts of money that they had planned on because this ceiling was really made a reality by the Republicans, then the Biden administration would have to figure out, okay, who's not going to get spent on? And I meant it what I said before. Are you going to take back money that you were going to give uh, to Social Security recipients? Are you going to cut the budget for all the other things the government does? Are you going to close the, the COVID vaccination program? What is it you're going to do? And I think the Republicans are enjoying the prospect of putting Mr. Biden in such a pickle, because no matter where he cuts, the people affected which could be all of us, are going to be upset and angry, and the Republicans are calculating that most of them will blame the government doing the cutting rather than the Republicans imposing. But if they didn't cut at home because it's too politically dangerous, but said to the people around the world who own the debt of the United States government, 
okay, we can't borrow anymore because we've hit the ceiling, so we're not going to pay you back the way we had promised. We're not going to pay you interest. People should understand the United States is the largest debtor country in the world, and it needs to be able to borrow more than any place in the world because that's how it organizes its economy. And if it were unable to do that, we're in a whole new ballgame of what will happen in this economy if the government cannot borrow the vast sums that are keeping it going. I mean, we have to face, although I know it's difficult for Americans, that we're now an economy on government life support, and that life support is borrowing, and the Republicans are playing with a very dangerous fire. Yeah, and all eight years of the Bush administration, all four years of the Trump administration, they just routinely raised the debt ceiling. It wasn't even an issue. Absolutely. There you go. Professor Richard Wolf, thank you so much. It's great, great talking with you. Thank you. Stick around. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Want to get into the uh, Texas abortion hypocrites. Seattle. Hey, Carol, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I was thinking about a little off the topic of the abortion thing, but could we do more antibody testing to know our exact levels of uh, immunity and then therefore saving the boosters or third shot uh, for others and not get one until we know you know, what our levels are. Yeah. I, a, a, my understanding is that antibody testing is very expensive. So there's, and it's not something that's relatively easily done. So that may be a problem. And I think that I don't think that's true though, because they do it with animals, even with their titer. And I just right. I feel like we're missing something here. So okay, I, I'm well, maybe not an I'm, expert. Maybe I'm misinformed on that. And I, but, maybe I'll do some homework too. Yeah. Well, the and the B where I was going with that is a little bit like you know when I was a kid, there was this famine going on in China, and my mom used to say, "Eat all your food. There's there's children starving in China." And I would push my plate across the table and say, well, why don't you put it in a box and ship it to them? Just because we don't use boosters on a vaccine that has to be kept at 70 degrees below zero and only lasts for a few months or maybe even a few weeks at that, doesn't mean that we can easily start shipping it all over the world. We, what we really need to do, rather than denying people boosters so that we can vaccinate the world, is do away with these uh, patent protections and and force the companies that develop these drugs, these vaccines, to offer licenses at lower prices than they might otherwise like, but still making a profit to third world countries that have vaccine manufacturing capabilities so that they can make the vaccines there and we can get this thing under control. And that's you know what, what we talk to uh, Lori Wallach about all the time, about these so-called TRIPS waivers. And uh, exactly. so, so I, I really think that's what we need to be doing. Thanks and I think we're missing okay. a few other steps, but we can talk later on that. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> okay, thank you, Carol. Thank you. Beth in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Beth, what's up? Hi, well, I wanted to talk about the manufacture of vaccines in other countries, too. Mm-hmm. You know, we hear all about trying to get the leftovers used by other countries, and that um, two other countries for them to use, and that just doesn't work. I mean, it's all, it's so complicated. But um, there, the current uh, budget bill has some money in it that was really kind of forced by public outcry about getting some money in for that manufacturing process. I'm a member of Results, and we worked really hard on that. We're now working on getting $25 billion for that in the budget. Now, I was just wondering if you had any, any ideas on, on a little tricks that we could use to get the, to raise the awareness of the issue and get more people involved and get them aware of the importance of getting the supply that way. This is providing subsidies to the manufacturers? Well, no, it's building the framework of the manufacturing. So uh-huh. it would include things like getting the patents, you know, loosened up for uh-huh. them, but also just they need the 
They need the supply chain. They need the... Oh, this is about like domestic sourcing of raw materials and things like that. Well, just whatever is needed to get, yeah. to get, there are centers that are you yeah. know, capable of doing it. We just need to get the, get the thing started. Beth, I confess I'm, I'm not real well educated about this. If, if you have any information on it, feel free to tweet it at me. Beth, I got to run. Thanks. to just share with you my rant from HartmanReport.com. It's titled, The Texas Abortion Hypocrites Don't Care About Post-Birth Children. You know, that Governor Abbott and the Republicans in Texas will tell you that they're very, 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 very concerned about children, particularly before they're born, even when they're the size of a grain of rice and have a tail indistinguishable from a tadpole at around six weeks of gestation. But when children are post-birth, when they're old enough that the state of Texas might have to use some of those tax dollars from their rich people to care for those kids when their own birth parents can't or won't, suddenly Texas Republicans have amnesia about all this concern for children. U.S. District Judge Janice Jack had scheduled a two-day hearing where the lawyers for the children in foster care, or for many of the children in foster care in Texas, have been just outraged, just very, very concerned about what's, what's going on in Texas. And I'll lay that out in just a second. She had this two-day hearing scheduled, and three hours into it, she just cut it off and said, that's it, enough. She said, I don't know if anything would be served by continuing the hearing and she doesn't want to give the state any more time to study this. I mean, already the state of Texas has studied this situation for decades, and Greg Abbott apparently wants to have another study. While children are sleeping on office floors, they're crashing in flea bag motels, they're failing to get therapy or medications that they need, they're being sexually and physically abused. In this hearing, for example, they presented evidence about a seven-year-old who was handcuffed by a security guard, other kids who tried to commit suicide by slashing their wrists, hanging themselves and drinking cleaning fluids. This past year in Texas, there were over 630 confirmed, substantiated allegations of abuse, neglect, or exploitation within the system. 14,227 violations by the state. And these are the things they caught. Violations of what they referred to as minimum standards of care. Over the past six years, the same judge uh, Judge Jack has repeatedly ruled that Texas is violating its own children's constitutional right to be free from unreasonable risk of harm, is the phrase that they use. And the state basically has refused to do anything about it. They don't want to raise taxes on their morbidly rich people. And she's found them in contempt of court twice. This is what Judge Jack said. She said, governors in the past, as well as this governor, and legislators in the past have done study after study after study and have come up with the same issues, the same exact issues. Uh, Judge Jack added, I just want these children to be safe. I mean, this is particularly troubling given the explosion of unwanted kids who are going to start being born in about nine months in Texas. You're going to see thousands more children a year whose parents are unable to take care of them, too young or immature to take care of them, not competent to take care of them, or in some cases, frankly, just don't give a damn, don't want, didn't want the kids in the first place, and don't want to take care of them. And sadly, having, having worked in that industry back years ago, I can tell you that, that that's a very real part of this problem. And, you know, wealthy white women are going to have no problem in Texas getting an abortion. They'll just hop on an airplane and fly to another state. But poorer women in Texas who don't have the resources... Or, or women in Texas who don't have the resources and very definitely don't want to have children, they're going to be the ones who are going to end up having these children, and these children are going to end up in the system. And so Texas not only is exaggerating or amplifying or expanding the number of children that they're going to have to be dealing with, of course, it's not going to be Greg Abbott's problem. These kids are going to pop up in the system in two, three, five, ten years. Right? It's going to be long after Greg Abbott has run for president and, you know, whatever, you know, and retired. But this is, this is just a crime, what's going on in Texas. 
the, the fact that the state, on the one hand, is forcing low-income women to have children. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm telling you, you just look at the statistics in the, in the foster care system. So many of these kids are coming out of low-income homes who just don't have the resources to care for them, or in some cases just didn't, didn't want to have them in the first place, but, you know, didn't have the resources to get an abortion or didn't even know about it in some cases. You get, you know, 15-year-olds. and In Texas, sex education is forbidden to talk about birth control or abortion. They don't even know, in many, in many cases, these kids don't even, who are these young women who are having these children, or the children who are having children, essentially, don't even know what's available to them. They end up having these babies, and then they end up in the system. And this is all so that Greg Abbott can get the votes of white evangelicals. They're the ones who have been pushing the abortion issue mostly. I, I realize the Catholic Church has been big on it, but uh, this is just so hypocritical. It's insane. We'll be back. Pick up your phone calls right after the break. What's it going to take for Texas Republicans to see the error, the hypocrisy that they are marinating? Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is ADHD, A Hunter in a Farmer's World by Tom Hartman. This is from chapter three, Hunters in Our Schools and Offices, The Origin of ADHD. The earliest theories about attention deficit disorder characterized it as a diseased state that had to do with brain damage or dysfunction. At various times, it has been lumped in with fetal alcohol syndrome, mental retardation, various genetic mental illnesses, psychiatric disorders resulting from early trauma or childhood abuse, and the theory that parental smoking led to fetal oxygen deprivation. Prior to the 1970s, when ADHD was first characterized as a specific disorder, ADHD children and adults were largely treated simply as bad people, even though attentional deficits have been recognized in the psychological literature since 1905. They were the kids who always got into trouble, the James Deans of the world, the rootless and unsettled adults like Abraham Lincoln's father, the Lone Ranger, or John Dillinger. More recent research, however, has demonstrated a high incidence of ADHD among the parents of ADHD kids. This discovery caused some psychologists to initially postulate that ADHD was the result of growing up in a dysfunctional family. They suggested that ADHD may follow the same pattern as child or spousal abuse, moving through generations as learned behavior. The dietary-causing advocates contended that children's parents' eating habits, and this accounts for the generational patterns of ADHD. Other studies suggest that, like Down syndrome or muscular dystrophy, ADHD is a genetic disease, and a specific gene, the A1 variant of the D2 dopamine receptor gene, has been identified by scientists as the leading candidate. But if ADHD is a genetic disease or an abnormality, it's a popular one, possibly afflicting as many as 25 million individuals in the United States. Some estimates put ADHD as occurring in 20% of males and 5% of females. Other estimates are much lower, hitting a bottom of 3% of males and a half percent of females. With such a wide distribution among our population, is it reasonable to assume that ADHD is simply a quirk? That it's some sort of aberration caused by defective genes or child abuse? When the condition is so widely distributed, inevitable questions arise. Why? 
Where did ADHD come from? The answer is, people with ADHD are the leftover hunters, those whose ancestors evolved and matured thousands of years in the past in hunting societies. There is ample precedent for genetic diseases, in quotes, that in fact represent evolutionary survival strategies. Sickle cell anemia, for example, is now known to make its victims less susceptible to malaria. When living in the jungles of Africa, where malaria is endemic, it was a powerful environmental tool against death by disease. In the malaria-free environment of North America, it became a liability. The same is true of Tay-Sachs disease, a genetic condition that hits mainly Eastern European Jews and confers on them a relative immunity to tuberculosis. And even cystic fibrosis, the deadly genetic disease common among Caucasians, one in 25 white Americans carries the gene, may represent a genetic adaptation. Recent research indicates the cystic fibrosis gene helps protect its victims at younger ages from death by such diarrheal diseases as cholera, which periodically swept Europe thousands of years ago. It's not so unusual, apparently, for uh, humans to have built into our genetic material protection against local diseases and other environmental conditions. Certainly Darwin's theory of natural selection argues in favor of such bodily defenses. Those individuals with immunities would survive to procreate and pass along their genetic material. As the human race moved from its earliest ancestors, two basic types of cultures evolved. In the areas that were lush with plant and animal life and had low human population density, hunters and gatherers predominated. In other parts of the world, particularly Asia, farming or agricultural societies evolved. Be it pursuing buffalo in North America, hunting deer in Europe, chasing wildebeest in Africa, or picking fish from a stream in Asia, these hunters needed a certain set of physical and mental characteristics to be successful. Number one, they constantly monitor their environment. That rustle in the bushes could be a lion or a coiled snake. Failure to be fully aware of the environment and notice that faint sound might mean a swift and painful death. Or that sound or flash of movement might be the animal the hunter was stalking and noticing it would mean the difference between a full belly and hunger. I've walked through forests and jungles with modern hunter types in the United States, Europe, Australia, and East Africa, and one characteristic always struck me. They notice everything. A flipped over stone, a tiny footprint, a distant sound, an odd smell in the air, the direction in which flowers point or moss grows. All these things have meaning to hunters, and even when walking quickly, they notice everything. Number two, they can totally throw themselves into the hunt. Time is elastic for them. Another characteristic of a good hunter is the ability to totally focus on the moment, utterly abandoning all consideration of any other time or place. When the hunter sees the prey, he gives chase through gully or ravine, over fields or through trees, giving no thought to the events of the day before, nor considering the future, simply living totally in that one pure moment and immersing himself in it. When involved in the hunt, time seems to speed. When not in the hunt, time becomes slow. While a hunter's ability to concentrate in general may be low, his ability to utterly throw himself into the hunt at the moment is astonishing. Three, they're flexible, capable of changing strategy on a moment's notice. If the wild boar vanishes into the brush and a rabbit appears, the hunter is off in a new direction. The book ADHD, A Hunter in a Farmer's World by Tom Hartman. Uh, just a couple of things I wanted to flag for you, and then I'll pick up your phone calls here on uh, you know, pretty much any of the topics of the day, whatever you'd like to talk about. The first is an article that a uh, listener brought to my attention, and the tip of the hat, and thanks for that. It's titled, Why Are Seniors Switching Their Dying Seniors Switching Their Medicare Coverage? This is in uh, Money Talks News. It was part of uh, the MSN uh, network news. And uh, I'll just you know, read little pieces of it. This is about a, a government accounting office or accountability office, the GAO that is kind of, you know, does oversight basically for government programs. They were looking at Medicare Advantage versus Medicare, and what they found was that, well, I'll just read it. Seniors with Medicare Advantage programs are more than twice as likely to leave their plan and switch to traditional Medicare during their last year of life, a recent government analysis shows. This, by the way, also leads to higher costs for the federal government, according to the GAO, because last year of life is typically the most expensive year of life in terms of health care costs. And uh, so what's happening is seniors are dropping their Medicare Advantage programs, going back to regular Medicare for that last year. So the government is paying for it rather than the big for-profit health insurance companies or the HMOs. 
They were looking at uh, more uh, disenrollment and mortality data from 2015 through 2018. It's a 40-page report to Congress that the GAO came up with. This, is, this follows on a 2017 GAO report that found that uh, under some Medicare Advantage contracts, enrollees in, in, who were in poor health were, quote, substantially more likely, 47% on average, to leave their plan when compared with enrollees in better health. Which just, you know, kind of supports what I keep saying, which is that Medicare Advantage sounds like a great deal when you're healthy. But as soon as you get sick, it can be a real kick in the teeth. And, you know, here we've got, you know, the federal, the federal government, the GAO, coming basic, basically right out and saying the same thing. <sighs> Amazing. By the way, I, uh, <laughs> I, I, we have spies. I have a friend who, is, uh, who works as a producer for a right-wing talk show host that I will not name who sent me this thing from the Republican Study Committee, which I've got to get on their mailing list. The, the Republican Study Committee is, you know, basically within the House of Representatives, it's a bunch of right-wingers. The chairman is Jim Banks. And this is uh, what I think you can expect, the right-wing talking points. Hear them here before you hear them anywhere else. It's titled, The Democrats' Dangerous Open Border Plan for Afghanistan. Keep in mind, we just brought 100,000 or so people out of Afghanistan, many of them Afghans or Afghanis, whichever is the correct pronunciation, who are, shall we say, not white European people and, uh, and, Christian, and not Christian people. And as a result, of course, the Republican Party has gone into full freakout. What, more brown people who aren't Christians coming to the United States? And uh, these are the points that they are making, that this just came out of the Republican Study Committee about the Afghan vetting process. President Biden's proposed language says that an Afghan national shall hereafter be eligible for the benefits if an Afghan national, you know, they, well, they go through a bunch of uh, but, uh, language. But basically, the Republicans are claiming that the Biden administration is not doing enough to vet these folks, which is absurd, number one. Number two, the Republicans are claiming that Joe Biden is offering these people welfare for the rest of their lives, which is also not true, although they are entitled to get, you know, welfare programs initially because, hey, you know, you come to the United States with what? You got a job with uh, Hewlett Packard or something? I mean, really? Number three, it passed the citizenship. Yes, they can be given green cards. And then, you know, after five or 10 years, whatever it is, it's quite a, quite a period of time. Those green cards can be... Uh, you know, you can apply for citizenship. But that's just like got the Republicans absolutely hysterical. And then the fact that this could be extended to relatives, in other words, more brown people might come into the United States, oh my God, maybe even Muslims, uh, because they're related to somebody who, you know, worked for the U.S. military. We brought them over to the United States as part of this, you know, exit out of Afghanistan. They get their green card, they get their citizenship 10, 15 years down the road. They're bringing their relatives in now uh, on the relative visa programs, all of which is legal and normal and routinely done. But, oh, my God, the Republicans are hysterical about this. The conclusion, quote, this is from the Republican Study Committee. It would be mind-bending to commemorate, commemorate the 20th anniversary of 9-11 by giving any unvetted Afghan national with ulterior motives who has been evacuated now or in the future unfettered access to the American homeland. Just that word homeland triggers me. I've got to tell you that we never referred to the United States as a homeland before. If we are to call this country the homeland, it is the homeland for Native Americans. It is the homeland for the Iroquois and the Cree and the Shoshone. And, but it is not the homeland for the people that the Republicans are talking about when they use this word. Where did this word come from? Well, back in 1937, when Rudolf Hess was introducing Adolf Hitler at the Nuremberg rally, this is, this is when the, the, the Nazis stopped referring to Germany as der Vaterland, the fatherland, and started referring to it as der Heimat. Heimat is the German word for homeland. And this is the first use, and I'll tell you, the reason why they did this, by the way, 
is that there was this growing movement, particularly given the attacks on Jewish people in Germany at the time, keep in mind this is 1937, there was a growing Zionist movement to create a homeland, a Heimat, for the Jewish people. And it was being discussed all over the world. Of course, that you know, came out of the end of World War II and the Holocaust. But the Nazis thought, hey, cool, let's appropriate that language for Germans. And so Rudolf Hess introducing Adolf Hitler using the word homeland for the first time and saying, you know, thanks, Dank, Ehrenführer, thanks to our Fuhrer, Heimat Hussein, we, we now have a homeland. Germany is a Heimat, a, a homeland, a homeland for Germans all over the world. Uh, alles über die ganze Welt, you know. I, Anyhow, that's, that's the story of it. And it just makes me crazy. I'm gonna have to get that on there. It just makes me crazy that they're, that they're, they're like, uh, the Republicans, unfettered access to the American homeland. And this is, this is why I objected when George W. Bush said, let's call the Department of National Security the homeland security. It's like, homeland, really? Anyhow, end of rant. Let me pick up some of your phone calls here. Uh, let's see here. T-Rez in uh, Mount Shasta, California. Hey, T-Rez, what's up? Hey, thanks. Uh, let me turn you off. So my thought today when I was listening to you talk about the deficit, mm-hmm. bringing home 2,500 military from Afghanistan and stopping that war, isn't that going to put money back into the coffers that's not spent on military budget? One would hope. Although, and then the next question is, we need to retool our military, because I know they're in all the states, and have them, instead of making bombs and bombers, making high-speed rail uh, cars. And changing, we need to change our military machine that depends on millions and billions to yeah. be making things for the new green industry. I am absolutely with you on that. Um, absolutely with you. I probably you. learned it from you. I probably learned it from you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening. Those are sure. my questions. Yeah, I, you know, and, and hopefully, you know, uh, undoing, the, ending the Afghan war and, and hopefully soon, you know, undoing the, uh, the war in Iraq will have that effect. It, it will, it could reduce our military budget. I'm not holding my breath. For whatever's starting to happen, these little war games in Korea could be putting us back into some sort of game. Yeah, I'm very concerned about North Korea. I'm very concerned about Taiwan and China as well. Um, it's it's not a good one. T-Rez, thanks for the call. Thanks for watching Free Speech TV. So there are actually some substantial differences between the Taliban, the Afghanistan Taliban, the group that has... You know, that Donald Trump signed what his defense secretary and his national security advisor referred to as surrender documents to back in uh, early 2020. There's a difference between the Taliban and ISIS, or even K-ISIS, which is how they're identifying the ISIS group that has emerged in Afghanistan. The main difference is that the Taliban's ambitions are largely confined to Afghanistan. They want to be a regional force. They were, they, they were the government of Afghanistan before. They want to be the government of Afghanistan again. ISIS, on the other hand, wants to reestablish the entire caliphate across the Middle East, across northern Africa, across parts of southern Europe. And this is going to bring these two into conflict. I've got a whole video about this over at TomHartman.com. Check it out. Mark in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today? So, Tom, I think recently didn't the Portland City Council and also Ted Wheeler support a kind of a boycott of uh, Texas? It hasn't. uh, I don't think it's been done yet. They were talking about it. I mean, I haven't read the Oregonian in the last two days, so maybe I missed something. But they were talking about not sending anybody down there. And Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor of Texas, referred to Portland as a dumpster fire city and made fun of us. Well, Texas <laughs> needs to be embarrassed, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, there you and, go. Uh, and, they, you know, even if a national boycott gets out there, all the blue states say, look, why should we do business with a state that doesn't respect women? I mean, that should be a meme. We need memes going out there. There needs to be memes every day that embarrass Texas and economically hurt them. I mean, they need to be hurt by this because, you know, unfortunately, you know, there are good people in Texas, of course, but when your state is controlled by these right-wing fanatics, 
that are intent on just demonizing and hurting women, poor women. Yeah. I mean, that just cannot stand nationally. It just cannot stand. There's so a, I think any type, any type of attempt to, to, to embarrass them nationally with a boycott or something where you, they can economically get hurt, that's, that's going to be a good thing. Yeah, over on, I, I'm pretty sure it was on Daily Kos, and let me just take a quick look and see if, I've, if I can quickly find it. Maybe not. It was, they came up with what companies were the major supporters of the Texas law, basically, you know, the Texas anti-abortion law. And right. what they found was that it was AT&T was the largest supporter. Now, I can't verify that. You know, this is, quote, something I read on the Internet. So don't take it, you know, as gospel. But if AT&T is your telephone provider, you do have alternatives and you may want to call AT&T and just ask them, is it true that you corporately are the largest corporate supporter of the Republicans in Texas who passed the anti-abortion law? I'd like to know. So I'd like to know if I should be changing to Sprint or Verizon or T-Mobile or something like that. You know, I, I, I think those kinds of things actually uh, are also going to happen. Mark, thank you for the call. Robert in Modesto, California. Hey, Robert, what's on your mind today? I, I was just listening to you talking about the uh, hypocrisy of the uh, abortion bans in, in Texas and that, that are starting to spread around. Mm -hmm. And call me a fabulous and maybe a really pessimistic person, but I can see where some future Republican will address the, the excess babies that are coming about that you were talking about as a, as a doorway to repealing child labor laws by saying, well, you know, we're concerned about them, but they would be in a lot less of, of a problem if we could put them to work. There are actually and, Republicans who have been saying that for a long, long time, that the, the child labor laws are an infringement on the right to contract. And the, the excuse that they typically use is family farms. Uh, you know, the child labor laws make it illegal for you to have your 10-year-old go out and milk the cows, which is not, which is not the case, by the way. But, but that's, that's the, you know, just like they say, you know, the, the estate tax is going to cause family farms to go extinct, which, you know, family farms are almost never involved in estate taxes. But they, that's, again, the, what they use. Well, and then you tie it in with, like, the, the, the report that I just saw not too long ago about the disparity of, like, 10 million jobs, 8.5 million people out of work, you know, that, that we have all these jobs that are unfilled, you know, let's put some little hands to work on it, you know, and take the responsibility off of the state other than managing, like, working like, a, like an Angie's List or something where they get a cut, you know. Uh, uh, if you need workers, we got the kids, you know, yeah. just give us a cut. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's entirely it's entirely reasonable, Robert, to assume that Republicans are going to be making that pitch, um, and 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 it's always disingenuous. It's like they for years and years and years they've been saying, yeah, keep the minimum wage at seven seven fifty because you know it's just teenagers who are working minimum wage jobs. When in fact, you know, about I don't recall the exact number. Two thirds is what sticks in my head. I could be wrong. It might be larger than that of all minimum wage workers in the United States are actually adults who are supporting families. And or, or, or like my mom, she went back to work for McDonald's at, at 45 because yep. she'd been a you know, housewife mother before that, and that was the first job that she could get. Yep. You know? Yeah. She and went on, but... but yeah, and a lot of them were single parents, too, I would add. I don't know if your mom was I or not. Believe I believe that. that but, but that's... But well, Modesto's, Modesto's a pretty good example of that. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the demographics here, you know, they're, 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 they're not the worst, but they're pretty shocking. Uh, the other thing that they could tie in is the border, border thing. Is Well, we don't need to put, bring in the people from the South when we got all these children here. I mean, they, 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 you know, they're really good at rationalizing their, their false concerns, and right. I'm, I, I'm afraid that that kind of thing actually resonates with a lot of people. Yeah, you know, who needs immigrant and, and, labor? We've got 10-year-olds. What's that? Who needs immigrant labor? We've got 10-year-olds. Yeah, and, and and why do you need why why would you need uh you know uh food stamps or any, anything like that when you've got you know you know back to the idea of the farm labor kids, you know, yeah. you know, they got the whole summer off or whatever, you know, the, the they should be contributing their fair share, you know, otherwise they're just a load on us. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's crazy. And and I can see a you know, uh, <laughs> just a whole spectrum of stuff coming out of this. And Robert, yeah, great. put them on a road crew. Put them on a road crew to, to, to take care of the infrastructure that helps them out. You know, it sounds like it helps us out, but it helps them out more. Yeah, it's incredible. Robert, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Important stuff.
VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Okay, I found the clip. Again, you know, this is where the word homeland came from. This is when Germany started adopting the word homeland. By the way, they, they don't use it anymore. After the Nazis were gone in the 50s, they went back to referring to it as the fatherland or the motherland, depending on what part of Germany you're in. But George W. Bush and Dick Cheney brought this word into the American vocabulary. And those of you old enough to remember what America was like before 9-11, we never, ever, to the best of my knowledge, in the history of this country, referred to this country as our homeland. And here's Rudolf Hess introducing Adolf Hitler again, Dankier und Führer. Thanks to our Führer, Germans now have a Heimat and a homeland, by the way, for Germans all over the world. Uber de Ganseveld. Here it is. Dank Ihrer Führung wird Deutschland sein Ziel erreichen. Heimat zu sein. Heimat zu sein. Heimat zu sein. All the Deutschers in the world, right? All the Germans in the world. We're going we're gonna to make a Heimat, a, a homeland. Yeah, right. What a great word to name our national security system. I just, I'm chilled every time I hear that, having lived in Germany for a year and known some actual Nazis. Anyhow, Brenda in Tampa, Florida. Hey, Brenda, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Sorry, I'm going a little bit away from that topic. I want to oh, make any commentary. Okay, I want to make commentary on how we treat poor people in this country. I have a brother who is disabled, who's been disabled all his life since he was a kid. He wasn't able to work enough to get Social Security when he turned 65, so... Now, he is on, he's been on Social Security Disability all his life. Mm -hmm. So, um, he, my, another brother of mine died from COVID and left him about $3,500 in life insurance. Mm -hmm. So, yesterday he received a letter from Social Security Disability that his check is in jeopardy. They're either going to cut it or they're going to take it away from him altogether for a certain period of time. Oh, no. Yeah. So just a commentary on how we treat poor people in this country. Right. You're not allowed to have a little bit of extra money. Uh, sorry, you're supposed to be poor if you want to get these benefits. Brenda, have you called your member of Congress? Typically, they have somebody's, even the Republicans, they have somebody whose job is what's called constituent services, and they can intervene with federal agencies like the Social Security Administration on your behalf? Okay, well, he's in a different state than I am, mm -hmm. but I certainly will look into that. You could call whoever uh, would be his representative. Right. And, and, okay. and just, you know, argue his case and say, this is what's going on. And, and, you know, can you intervene or is there anything that we can do? I'm exactly. so sorry to hear this. Exactly. But you're absolutely right. Yeah, this, is, this is built into our system. It's punitive, essentially. Yes, it is. Dying from COVID. And I'm a, it'll be a lot of people in this situation mm -hmm. yeah. who um, will inherit a little bit of life insurance and yet be penalized. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Brenda, thank you for sharing that story. That's uh, remarkable. You thank you. Thank you. Yep, good talking to you. Diane in Little Rock, Arkansas. Hey, Diane, you've been uh, watching the hearings on the uh, Larry Nasser and the sexual abuse of the gymnasts? Yes, and it goes back to the incompetence of the uh, FBI 
also the role the FBI played when Trump was president and the insurrection. Where has Christopher Ray been, and uh, are there Trump sympathizers in still in the FBI? Maybe Christopher Ray needs to resign. We need to clean house. That's all yeah. I have to say. Yeah. I think you can take that to the bank, Diane, that there are still Trump sympathizers in the FBI, as there are in law enforcement agencies all across the United States. And you're right, Chris Ray was uh, put into the position of director of FBI by Donald Trump. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I've been saying from the beginning of the Biden administration that he needs to clean house and get somebody new in there in the FBI. But, you know, we have what we have. Maybe this will be something that pushes. I wasn't able to watch the hearings because I was on the air. But maybe this is something that will push it over the edge. I don't know. We'll see. Mazelle in Tacoma, Washington. Hey, Mazelle, what's up? Hi, Tom. I was calling because I believe that parents, mom, dad, guardian, grandma, grandpa, need to really start talking to their kids, especially their daughters. Gone soon will be the days that this keeps going of students, especially female students, having talked with their teachers and confidentiality about that they don't can't tell they, they can't do it period. in Texas. You know, by by law in Texas, teachers can't even mention birth control pills. But here's the thing: teachers can't mention, and not all teachers teach um, sex ed. Usually, that right. used to be just to the point of physical uh, education. Teachers go right. ahead and teach sex ed, um, and then you have you know, in other states, you have to get permission. Yeah. But my thing is, is that that never stops the student from coming in during the teacher's lunch break and say, "I have a problem." And the thing is, once that problem gets mentioned. Then that teacher is liable with that information of to go ahead and conduct the office. Oh so in Texas, if they do find out, then next thing you know, it's like, well, did that person, did that student come to terms with their pregnancy? Did you know she or he went and right. uh, supported abortion? Then that teacher in that school. I get it. Mazelle, I'm sorry, I'm out of time, but I get it. You're right. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is The Storm is Upon Us by Mike Rothschild. The subtitle, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything. This is from Chapter 2. It's titled The Calm Before the Storm, How QAnon Started. Like so many recent lurches into the bizarre and inscrutable, the QAnon conspiracy theory began with a cryptic comment made by America's first conspiracy theorist president, Donald Trump. And like so many of Trump's other conspiracy adventures, it was a comment that was understood by nobody around him. On the night of Tuesday, October 5th, 2017, Trump called the White House press corps, who had been dismissed for the day, back to the state dining room. The president was holding court with top-ranking military officers and their families, enjoying the pageantry and adoration of his office. Military salutes, pomp and circumstance, a motorcade at your beck and call, and a briefcase full of nuclear codes that could destroy the world. In that magnificent room, with cameras clicking away, Trump stood in the middle of a line of uniformed and evening-gowned military staffers and spouses, looking around, enjoying what he saw. And in that muddle, speaking to nobody in particular, a tone into which Trump so often dropped when speaking off the cuff, he casually launched a conspiracy theory that would shatter America's brain. You guys know what this represents? Trump asked the room full of press. They did not. Tell us, sir, said one reporter as cameras clicked and generals duly smiled. Maybe it's the calm before the storm, the president quietly intoned as if he were the holder of a great secret that he could no longer contain. When one of the reporters reasonably asked what the storm was that he was referring to, Trump continued his cryptic riddle, could be the calm before the storm. Then there was silence as Trump and the best and brightest of the military continued to grin and cameras continued to snap. Finally, he spoke again. We have the world's great military people in this room, I will tell you that, he continued, pumping his fist and moving his hand around in a circular motion. Uh, we're going to have a great evening, he concluded. Then he thanked everyone for coming and began ushering out the reporters who he had just ushered in. But the media wasn't done, and the questions kept coming. What storm, Mr. President? 
You'll find out, Trump said to nervous titters among staffers as White House aides desperately tried to wrap things up before the president said anything so else so potentially war-starting. The whole exchange lasted less than 40 seconds. It was just one comment in a presidency full of strange utterances, empty boasts, misspelled threats, and unhinged ramblings about things that may or may not exist. Naturally, it was also the only thing the media wanted to discuss the next day. After all, when you got a room full of high-ranking military officers surrounding the head of the National Command Authority as he makes ominous proclamations, questions do need to be asked. Was Trump hitting, hinting at a new offensive against ISIS? A preemptive strike in North Korea or Iran? Something even worse that wasn't on anybody's radar? Follow-up questions the next day didn't help matters as Trump merely smirked, winked, and repeated, you'll find out when asked about the storm as he took questions during a cabinet meeting. The rest of the Trump administration scrambled to make it clear that whatever Trump was talking about, they had nothing to do with it. Vice President Mike Pence told reporters to take it up with his boss. Then Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders offered up this word salad, quote, As we've said many times before, I know the president has, as I have from this podium on quite a few occasions, we're never going to say in advance what the president's going to do, end quote. Trump's enemies of the people, as he was fond of calling them in the mainstream media, were clueless as well. Vox called the remark odd and ominous, while NBC News labeled it as simply cryptic. The Washington Post lamented that the stridently stupid remark had put the world on edge. And the New York Times rhetorically asked, what did the president mean by that remark? It was clear that nobody knew. But while the mainstream media was trying to figure out exactly what Trump meant, if indeed he meant anything at all, a few anonymous Trump admire, admirers decided they knew exactly what it meant and they liked it. Not only was it indeed related to a military operation, it was the first public stirring of a secret and enormous one involving people at the very top of the food chain being brought to justice in the bloodiest way possible. Once revealed in full to the American public, most of whom were too far asleep to recognize it, it would change the face of American life for good. And so, in a few posts on 4chan, a movement that would soon be called QAnon was born. The anonymous avatar that would lead to madness and murder started as another in a long line of 4chan posters who claimed to be a whistleblower letting their readers in on closely held secrets. Rather confusingly, these accounts are also known as anons, not to be confused with the term for people who read and interpret Q's drops. 4chan is an image board that was launched in 2003 by a 15-year-old New Yorker as an English-language counterpart to the hugely popular Japanese image board 2chan. It offers total anonymity, virtually no moderation, and lightning speed information flow in a way that is so chaotic it makes the board almost illegible to outsiders. The book The Storm is Upon Us by Mike Rothschild. in Milwaukee. Hey, Al, what's up? Uh, yeah, Tom, in response to your discussion about the German term Heimat, in Decorah, Iowa, there is a museum called the Westerheim Museum, mm -hmm. and it's dedicated to the uh, Norwegian arts and crafts. Uh, so, you know, uh, rose mauling and acanthus leaf carving. They're absolute masters of it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the term, I, I'd never thought of it, but finally, it, it dawned on me, you know, in terms of the German and, well, the Teutonic language. Westerheim was the term that the pioneers, the Norwegian pioneers used. Our Western for homeland. The Western homeland. The yeah. Western home. Uh, the Western Heimat. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Amazing. Thing, uh, in Milwaukee here, you know, you're talking about socialism. We refer to them as the old German socialists, mm -hmm. and they started back in the 1800s, and they actually, I think they were in office until the 1950s. Fantastic people, and they developed things ahead of Social Security. I think FDR modeled current Social Security and the various types of 
unemployment compensation. These were all in place because of these old German socialists yeah. that were in, in the mayor was Dan Hohn in the beginning. And then it was true uh, right across the Midwest. It was right across. My grandfather, who was a Norwegian, I mean, he came from Norway when he was like 10 years old or something like that in 1914 in the United States. My grandfather was just, you know, a full blown socialist, which is, I think, yeah. why my dad became a Republican. You know, it's like children always rebel. <laughs> but but well, uh, he was one of those Norwegian would... socialists, one of those German, Germanic, shall we say, socialists, because the Norwegians, the Swedes, and the, and the Germans were all settling, you know, the upper Midwest. This was up in New Ago, Michigan. People, people talk about how, uh, oh, socialism wouldn't work in the United States. Socialism doesn't work. There's no countries that are successful. Well, take a look at Norway and Denmark and Sweden. All those people are, you know, I, I know people who, Americans, who was an engineer with Volvo, and, you know, half of his paycheck went to the government, but he was well satisfied with the kind of benefits that he got. That's right. Life, life is good. Al, I got to run, but thank you. Thank you very much for that. And uh, my apologies to everybody else on hold. And uh, moving along here, thanks so much for being with us today. And please don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us to pitch in. And now is a really important time to be reaching out to your elected politicians and letting them know what you think. 202-224-3121 is the congressional switchboard. Tag, your it. Be good to yourself and the people around you, eh? You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.